0: Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. This is the Bible's storyline. This is God's big picture. Paradise was lost, but one day it will be found. This vision of promise that we consider this morning from the book of Revelation, this vision of the King who finally comes, the King who finally makes all things new, it's a bookend. The bookend in Revelation 21 and 22 is seen, first of all, in Genesis 1 and 2 with the paradise, the original creation, Eden, and our first parents, Adam and Eve. And this promise of the eternal heaven, the new earth and the new heaven, that we've considered over the last couple of weeks and we'll look at today, it is indeed something glorious. And it is not, as one author said, we won't be floating on clouds strumming on harps. As I mentioned last week, my childish idea as a church kid of heaven, we won't be in a long hallway in the clouds, sitting on wooden Sunday school chairs, singing songs all eternity. Heaven is far more, far vastly beyond what we can imagine, but surely what God reveals in His Word is that heaven is more and greater than that. To find out what God says about this eternal home that all of his own will share open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 21 and our text this morning will go from Revelation 21 verse 22 and we'll go down into chapter 22 of Revelation as Jesus the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit to the apostle John is it's coming to its culmination and its conclusion it appropriately ends where everything began, it appropriately ends with a new earth and God's fulfillment of all of His promises on it. We're going to begin reading verse 22 of Revelation chapter 21. And as I do every week, I remind you, it's my privilege to remind you that this is God's word for us today. Revelation 21, verse 22. John says, and I saw no temple in the city, They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more they will need no light of lamp or sun for the lord god will be their light and they will reign forever and ever here we find a promise of heaven that's beyond our imagination there evidently is social life here There's an eternal life that bustles with activity, with productivity, with worship. It is eternal. It is unhindered. It is unfettered. And it's all, all of it, is to the greater glory of God, His Son, the Lamb, and His Holy Spirit. This, and here's my thesis this morning, this is as it should have been. What God does in the end is he restores and renews and makes better what he intended in the beginning. This is human life as it should have been. This is human life as it should be today. And it is radically different, yet it has much in common and is familiar to us. This is heaven. And what I'm suggesting this morning is this is something we all should look forward to indeed. But it's also a truth that when we grasp it and attempt to understand it, it solidifies us. It gives us a firmer foundation for life now. You recognize this. If this is all we have, the Apostle Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, we're of all people most miserable. The family who lost their little niece who was 26 days old in our church this week. You tell them this is the best there is? Some of you have loved ones who are suffering in Ukraine right now. Shall we tell them this is the best there is? We all think about our own hearts, our own lives, our own failures. The train wrecks that we've been guilty of, even the ones that we hope no one ever knows about. Is this all there is? The Bible says no. And understanding God's purpose in the future and understanding what He's done in the past grounds us in our lives day by day. So here's what I'm suggesting this morning. This new heaven and new earth that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22, this new heaven and new earth will feature all that our first parents forfeited. What God intends to do is all of this which was denied to each of us because they sinned and we were born guilty because of their sin, and then we freely chose on our own to sin, all that was forfeited by them on our behalf, if I can say it that way, one day God will fully restore our God's new heaven and new earth will feature, first of all, a radically renewed intimacy. Look back at verse 22. you see that? This is the emphasis of the fact that there will be no temple there because the temple is God himself, the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There is something better than a temple. A temple will no longer be needed. Because remember, this is what a temple did. A temple, it defined the differences and represented separation. Clearly, God desired to dwell with His people, but He had to dwell with His people in a sense of separation, without a full intimacy, because He is intimately holy, and His people are not. And so, whether you want to talk about at the altars in the Old Testament or the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple that God provided for his people Israel, whether you want to talk about the the fact that the church today represents the temple, and there's a sense in which our own lives represent the temple, but we know that there's something that falls short in that because God is infinitely holy and we are not. God is infinite and we are limited by our finiteness. But that day, that intimacy, this radically renewed intimacy will be true and will be full There's no need for any mediation because he will be totally present with purified people forever. And look again at the verse. Who is this intimacy with? It is the Lord God, and here's that phrase again we've seen in Revelation show up from time to time. Who is he? He's the Lord God Almighty. You know, I think I'm fairly realistic about the people I preach to. And I know from time to time that it's hard for some of us to accept or believe all the incredible things we find in God's Word. I mean, this verse itself, the implication, the passage we've read says that there's no sun or moon in this new earth and new heaven. And so all of our physicists and scientists and all of our engineers are wondering, well, how does that work? And there's a pushback because all of this is another realm that's difficult for us to comprehend. But let me warn you, let me just challenge you, if I could push back a little bit. If you refuse to believe that God is almighty, then you have a deficient view of God himself. God who is able to make all things new to completely renovate and remake this universe in a way that will last eternally for the blessing of his people. If you listen to that and you say, Well, I don't think God is that powerful, then you've limited your God. You have an inadequate God. You have a small g God. You don't have the God of the Bible. You don't have the God who is the creator. You don't have the Lord God, look at the verse again, the Almighty. And yet, With all of this might and with all of this power, eternity means we will be intimate with him. We will be with him, an intimacy that we can't even imagine. And it's not just the Lord God, the Almighty, but in the mystery of the Trinity, one God, yet three persons. In the mystery of the Trinity, there's also the dwelling eternally and the intimacy with, it doesn't say Jesus, does it? It doesn't say with the Son, does it? It could have. But Jesus is called here the Lamb. He's called the Lamb all through this chapter in describing the eternal heaven. The Lamb who earlier in the book of Revelation, the Lamb who was slain, this is His identity. So all the way through eternity, after God has restored Eden, after He's restored creation, after He's restored paradise, Jesus will exist eternally as He does now and his primary identity will be the Lamb slain for sinners. And we will be one with him. Because it's the only way we have his forgiveness. We are written, as we'll see at the end of the text, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's a new intimacy. Second thing that I find here real quickly is that there's a radically renewed cosmos a radically renewed universe, if you prefer. I've already referred to it, but look again at 23. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. What kind of universe is this? Almost inevitably, when people deal with the book of Revelation, they want to write these things off as merely symbolic, and there's no question that there's symbolic language, even in our text this morning, but. I remind you once again, because it's so important, just because they symbolic language does not mean that what is described is unreal. You've heard the phrase, or imagine this phrase together with me, he literally threw me under the bus. He literally threw me under the bus. Now that's a symbolic statement, isn't it? Oh, hopefully at least. But do you recognize, in a sense, it's symbolic? And the question is, is it literal? Well, in a sense, it is literal. Because threw me under the bus is a symbolic statement, which means you know what it means blame me for everything. And so, someone can literally blame you for something that's not your responsibility and yet not necessarily go out on State Street and wait till a bus goes by and throw you under the bus. They literally threw you under the bus because it's a symbolic statement about something that is literally true. The language we've just been talking about. Jesus is the lamb slain. You you don't believe that all through eternity Jesus is going to be a woolly creature with bloodstains and four hooves. Jesus is our brother. He is eternally God, eternally man, and yet The symbolic language of the fact that he is a lamb slain means that literally and really he gave his life for us. So symbolic language, as confusing and challenging as sometimes it might be, remember that in God's word, under God's authority, under God's revelation, it refers to something that is real and the mystery here. Is This is some kind of real existence in a world, in a universe, that evidently has no need for sun and moon. Many people assume that means there will be no sun or moon. And we ask, how is that possible? Symbolically, we don't know, but literally we believe that our God is almighty, and therefore he will create a radically new cosmos. And this is, it goes back to last week. This is a glorified materialism. There's a materialistic nature to the new creation that is unquestionable, as a great Greek scholar, Dr. Thomas, said. And so there's a sense in which heaven, once again, is not ethereal spirits floating around on clouds playing harps. Heaven is some kind of world, and it has some kind of eternal, yet some kind of physical, material existence. I can't explain that, but that seems pretty clear from the text that we see this morning. And just because we can't understand or explain it all doesn't mean we should disbelieve it, because this is what God says. But the core of the message this morning is here, beginning in verse 24, where we find that there's a radically renewed society And let me show you what I mean by that. Look in verse 24. First of all, surprisingly, and I say surprisingly, I think you'll see, there's a new humility in this eternal heaven. There's a new humility. Look at what 24 says. By its light, the light of God, the light of the Lamb, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now, the reason I say this is a surprising humility is because kings don't act like this, do they? Kings don't bring their glory and yield it to someone else. They tend to keep all the glory for themselves. There's a story about the Hallelujah Chorus, about Messiah. You've heard the story, likely. That when it was presented in London, and the story is told of various different monarchs, King George, perhaps, or also Queen Victoria, that when the Hallelujah Chorus is sung, that the queen or the king, whichever the story goes, stood... And everyone else had to stand, and this is the tradition that even today, if you go hear the Messiah, typically in the hallelujah course, everyone will stand. Supposedly, we don't know historically whether this really happened, supposedly that was the king yielding its glory, or the queen yielding her glory to a greater one, to stand in the midst of a greater king. That anecdote, whether true or untrue, it illustrates this fact. Typically kings don't do this. But there's a surprising humility in heaven because, let me just suggest it this way, there will be never again any question of who is king. There will never again be any pushback to who is Lord. There will never be any question. There will be an inherent humility because of the wonder of heaven and the one who rules from his throne. There will be no more selfish exaltation. There will be no proud abuse of power. This is, sounds glorious, doesn't it? And all the influence of these kings will be used only for good. A new humility. And verse 25 implies there will also be a new safety. Because it says the gates will never be shut. There will be no more night. In ancient cities, the gates were shut basically for two reasons on two occasions. They were shut every night, and they were shut in the presence of enemies. What's the point? They were shut because of danger. The purpose of the gates were for protection. But the gates of heaven never need to be shut. Because there's no night and there are no enemies, there is no danger. You recognize what this means? There's no fear. There's no fear. It's a rare person that hasn't experienced fear to one degree or another. And there are people today, you know it as well as I do, who are paralyzed by fear. But in the new heaven and new earth, there will be no fear. Because there's a new safety. Because as we'll see, there is nothing of danger, nothing of evil, nothing of threat in that eternal place a new humility, a new safety, but unexpectedly, there's also a new productivity. Uh, One author, Leon Morris, says, there's no indolent leisure in heaven. And here's where I'm going to begin to stretch your thinking a little bit, but the point is, the garden was a place of productivity. The garden was a place of glorious contentment, but also work that was to the glory of God and with glorious production, and the implication seems to be that the eternal heaven, the eternal paradise, Eden restored, will have the same kind of productivity. You say, well, I don't see that in the text. Well, look in verse 26. They will, that is the nations and kings from verse 24, they will bring into it the city, the glory, and the honor of the nations. Now, I don't want to press this too hard. But the word honor there is a common word in ancient Greek and in the New Testament, which is often used for possessions. It's often used basically for value, for something that is held as a treasure. And the implication of this is that there will be, stay with me, there will be some level of productivity in the eternal kingdom. Once again, if you go back to the original Eden, there was the command to what? Be fruitful. And multiply and have dominion over the earth and subdue the earth there is some mirror of that evidently in the eternal kingdom which represents this is far beyond our typical thinking but it represents some level of productivity that is to the glory of God eternally I don't want to press this too far because I think speculation gets us in trouble but it seems to me that what this means is the things which appropriately give us pleasure because we we find ourselves creative and productive people and in engaging in either those hobbies or even our vocation, we give glory to God because of it. At that moment and in that gift of common grace where we utilize our gifts to do something worthwhile and in doing so we feel as, remember Eric Little in the movie Sheriffs of Fire, he says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. When we experience that, We give glory to God. There evidently is, by analogy, some kind of experience like that eternally, an eternal productivity. I don't think we expect that. Now, how are we to understand this? Uh, That verse, verse 27, says that this productivity will be brought in by the nations or kings. Who makes up these nations or kings? I mean, the language may be symbolic, but the language has to mean something. Again, in verse 26, they, the nations and kings, will bring into the city the glory and the honor of the nations. Verse 24. Remember, it says, by its light, the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. If you look down in verse 2 of the next chapter, it says, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. If you look in verse 4, at the end of the verse, it says, we will reign forever and ever. Verse 5, we will reign. And too often, I think it's asked, the question is asked, whom will we reign over? It doesn't just say God will reign. It says that redeemed humanity, glorified in the likeness of Jesus Christ, we will reign with him, and we will reign forever and ever. And my question is, over whom? It's an empty kingdom if there's no one to reign over. Now, here's where I'm headed. And if you have seatbelts, we should have had you put seatbelts on right now, all right? I think it's possible that in the eternal heaven, there's a new humanity. I think it's possible that there's a distinction here, a contrast between the inhabitants of the city. Remember, the city is linked with the bride. The bride are all of the redeemed from from this world, all of those who are written, as we'll see in a moment, all of those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, all of those who who have lived and died and then been resurrected. So these are resurrected believers. We are the inhabitants of the city. We are the Lamb. We do not give or receive in marriage. We exist eternally in a glorified state but is it possible because the contrast seems to be here between those who live in the city and those who are the nations and the kings who bring their productivity into the city in chapter 22 we read it the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations they are nourished by it we will be glorified We won't need any nourishment. The tree of life in Eden was for, remember what it said in the original Eden? They were kept from the tree of life after they sinned, lest they, what, live forever? There's something about the tree of life that to a mortal extends its lifespan. And if I haven't rocked your world already, I'll go further just real quickly. My theory is that that's the reason the patriarchs lived as long as they lived because our first parents had eaten of the tree of life. And it had influenced them, and that influence lasted through generations. Now, that's one of those things that I've never found anybody else that agrees with me on that. (laughs) But I'm just being honest with you this morning. The tree of life was there, and the tree of life is in glory. But the tree of life, which for Adam and Eve, we will not be in the same state as Adam and Eve. My suggestion to you is that maybe some will be in that state as Adam and Eve. A new humanity. You say, well, where do they come from? Well, remember we have the interim kingdom age? There's nothing that's said about the mortals that survived to the end of the thousand years. There are very specific references to resurrection through chapter 20 but there's no reference to death and resurrection for those people who live, during, live as mortals during the kingdom age. And some have suggested, and I think they may be right, that God somehow transforms them into an eternal, sealed, holy humanity that will live without sin, without temptation, that will live eternally in the heavenly age, in a sense, to fulfill ultimately who Adam and Eve were to be we see them fed by the tree of life we see them nourished by its leaves we see them bringing their product the product of their culture as worship into the city and finally my suggestion is we see them filling the earth as the original creation mandate called them to do we can't fill the earth Because we don't give and receive in marriage. There won't be childbirth for those of us that will be there glorified. My suggestion is there will be a new humanity there. Adam and Eve were the prototypes. And they will finally fulfill Adam and Eve's mandate. Unblemished image bearers. Dominion keepers. And here's my suggestion to you. Here's the reason this position, as odd as it sounds, appeals to me. Because God is never frustrated. God is never frustrated. This is what God intended Eden to be, and he will not be frustrated. It's my conviction that the eternal age will fulfill every intention he had for Adam and Eve with a new humanity that will live unblemished by sin and temptation and will fill the earth to God's glory. You may want to email the elders if this bothers you too much. But I think there's a possibility that this renewed society will have a new humanity in it. And in case I've confused any of you, which very likely I have, let me just add that there's, in this intriguing possibility that I'm suggesting, it shouldn't confuse us because there will be absolutely no sin, no temptation, no evil. Adam and Eve were untested, they failed. They were tested in sin, they failed, and they fell into sin. This new humanity will have been redeemed during the kingdom age and sealed in holiness eternally. Why do I say that? Because of verse 27. Look at it. Nothing unclean will ever enter the city nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is a new purity. This is a new purity. And it's guaranteed. So you and I, inhabitants of the city, we are written in the Lamb's book of life because of God's grace and redemption. If it's possible that there's a new humanity, they also will have been written in the Lamb's book of life because of their faith during the kingdom age. But everyone else is excluded. And here's another warning. It's not even the last one in the Bible. I mean, look at your Bibles. There's, there's not much left, right? But here's a warning, another warning. And it really represents Think about this. Verse 27 represents, again, by now it's 2,000 years old. It's one more invitation. It's an open invitation. It's as though though the Word of God, if I could personify the Word of God, if I could speak on behalf of the church, if I could just speak as a minister of the gospel, there is a begging of sinners to not be excluded from this glorious kingdom. There's an open invitation. If you will repent and believe, you can be included, not excluded. Because there will unquestionably be millions excluded, separated eternally. They will have no part in the glories we're talking about. And that may be some of you. I would stop again this morning and I would beg you, I would beg you to deal with the issue of your soul. This is real. It might not feel real to you this morning, but it is as real as, as everything we know in our existence. This will be true, and there will be those that will be eternally excluded because they have said, I'm not interested in coming on God's terms. I think I'm doing okay. And you recognize that what eternity will be, it will be God saying, have it your way. You're not interested? You won't humble yourself? You won't repent and believe? Have it your own way. I beg you this morning, God is willing to save. He's willing to forgive. He's willing to redeem. He's willing to include all who repent and believe. Because there's a warning here that there are many who will be excluded. A radically renewed society. There's also... Not just a new intimacy and a new universe or cosmos. There's not just a new society. There's also a radically renewed provision. This is probably what we're most familiar with in the biblical images of heaven. Verse 1 of chapter 22. Look at it again. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright and crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. In heaven, the throne is central. What is central in your life? Is it television? Is it your investment account? <laughs> is it your pocket computer that we call a phone? Is it your leisure? Is it your reputation? Is it your pleasure? Is it your bitterness? What's central to your life? Because in heaven, the throne of God is central. Everything revolves around the throne of God. Notice it's a single throne, but it is the throne of God, implying God the Father, and of the Lamb, the Son. And here again is the mystery of the Trinity. It's not two thrones. It's not even necessarily two people, two entities on the throne. It is one God, and yet that God known as God the Father, God the Son, and also God the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 2 through the middle of the street of the city. Some people think it means the city square. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. You want to talk about abundance? Every month you got a new, a new crop. Uh, where we live, in our community, there's an avocado orchard. And we are free to pick avocados. They harvest the avocados and sell them and But we can pick them. But I haven't figured out when avocados get ripe. And so every time I go out there, they're as hard as a rock. But they tell me there are at least a couple of harvests a year of avocados. So if anyone can help me with that, I'd really appreciate it. (laughs) But in heaven, in heaven it's an unending fruitfulness. There's an abundance. And you see the language. You say, well, is this symbolic? It is symbolic of something. And clearly what it's symbolic about is unfettered, unending abundance. You recognize what this would have sounded like to people 2,000 years ago, especially those in an agrarian society who every day of their lives they had to wonder about their crop and their next harvest. There's abundance in heaven. There's provision that's eternal. It's a river that won't run, run dry over where our kids live. The King's River You go over, they love that river over there, and half the time of year you go over there and it's as dry as a bone. They're not releasing water out of the mountains. There won't be any problem with that in heaven. And again, think about people in the ancient world where water was such an issue. And here you have the privilege, the opportunity. There will be the eternal provision of the water of life. You say, well, that's just symbolic. Well, it's symbolic of something it's symbolic of abundance and provision and everything we would ever need. And notice what it says the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Rivers, trees, vegetation, harvest, abundance, unending, never threatened. All like Genesis 1 and 2. All like when God said it was very good. An extravagant acts, excess. It's restored eternally. Now, I perhaps should acknowledge that at the very least, there's an element here that shows that God cares about creation. You don't have to send me emails that people have taken creation care to extremes and they worship the environment and they're, they've gone crazy. I recognize all of that. But I also recognize if we're serious about God as creator who will one day refashion this material world, we should care for the world he's given us now. That only makes sense. We too quickly reject all of that. This world matters too. Finally, and as a summary, look in verses 3 and 5. Look at these promises. No longer will there be anything accursed. You get that, right? No guilt, no strife, no struggle, no sickness, no death, no sorrow. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And here you have linked with the idea of all that is cursed, you have the Lamb who removed the curse. And how did He remove the curse? Galatians says, He became the curse for us. All, all the way, you, you have the gospel and redemption. All the way through and into eternity, Jesus in his primary identity as the lamb that was slain is this demonstration that the reason people like us are there in eternity is because he was willing to take the curse for us. This is the way the curse is removed. And all of his servants, middle of verse 3, the end of verse 3, will worship him. They will see his face, which perhaps is the greatest promise of all. Because you know through the Bible, it emphasizes the fact that you can't see God. God is spirit. Moses couldn't see him, remember? The fear was if they would, anyone would ever see the face of God, they would die. But eternally we will see his face. And even more, his name will be on our foreheads. Now I want to say this in a colloquial way as I can that's going to sound shocking we will be eternally branded with the name of our God you say is that literal or not I don't know but it's symbolic of something that's even greater and if it bothers you that God has such authority that he is willing to brand you you haven't grasped your own need and you haven't grasped the glory of God I don't know what it will look like. I don't know what that means other than it means something about God's absolute. And then at the end of the day, His merciful and gracious authority over people like us. That He made us His own. Verse 5. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. As opposed to that thousand years in chapter 20, chapter 20 talks about our reigning for a thousand years, but here the promise is we will reign forever and ever. What is it that we sang? Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does earth, receive your king. Jesus, who was born in humility, who lived in rejection, who died a bloody death, and then who conquered death and resurrection, he is the king eternally. And God with us, Emmanuel, in our Christmas season, is a promise, a down payment, a guarantee that one day God will be with us. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. And all of this, it's true now, but it will then be finally and fully true. I don't know if everything I've suggested this morning about heaven is precisely accurate. You know what I can say to you with absolutely no hesitation? Whatever it is, it's better. And whatever it is, it is to the greater glory of the God whom we rejected in our sin and yet who reached down and saved us as rebels and sinners through the life and death of His Son, Jesus Christ. And my suggestion to you is that what God started in the garden, He will finish in eternity. And that's your takeaway today. Our God is not finished. And that's good news. It's good news for us in our heartache. It's good news for us in our sin. It's good news for us in our frailty. God's not finished. And heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, is the promise of that. Our God is not finished. Father, would you speak to our hearts today? Would you encourage us as we come to your table? Would you remind us through the work of the Holy Spirit as the church gathers and uses created elements to remember the uncreated, the eternal. As we eat finitely Together, we represent an infinite truth. And Father, this is part of the promise of heaven that one day we won't need mediated elements to worship you, for you will be face-to-face with us. Until now, we still live in these shadowlands. And we need reminding. We need reminding of what you have promised to do We also need reminding of what you have done. So as we come to the table, may you ground us in these promises of the past and the promises of the future. And may you remind us in our lives this week in the good and also in the challenging, may you remind us that you are not finished. You are not finished with us. You are not finished with our church. You are not finished with the work of the gospel in the world. You are not finished with this created order that one day you will make all things new. And help us find in that truth strength and encouragement and hope that you are always at work. We pray these things in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.